Thanks. Uh, I wanted to uh, start off by thanking Dr. Halstead. And uh, this is awesome. <laughs> In every sense of the word, this is awesome. Um, it's a real privilege and a challenge to be up here before you guys. And I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I also wanted to just introduce you guys to my family. My mom and dad and my little brother came up. They're all out there. So if you guys want to stop by and say hi after, that's good. I want to, uh, I was saved in January of 91, and since that time, uh, God has been laying on my heart a very uh, fundamental principle, a very fundamental truth, and it is my desire to share that with you. Um, It's something that obviously has transformed my life, Um, it is why I'm standing up here, and uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and get started and just kind of take you guys and hope that you can follow. But uh, I wanted to um, just let you know, in spring of last year, I received kind of a word of prophecy. And uh, I know only the charismatics get that kind of stuff. And okay, it was in the book. So anyway, I received the prophecy. And the prophecy is uh, one that is yet to be fulfilled. Um, but it's one that is cause for great concern and great consideration. And I just want you guys, if you will, indulge for a second and just kind of picture with me, okay? Now, and I'm going to kind of read here so I don't get lost. Uh, the setting for this prophecy takes place in the glorious city of heaven. And I want you guys, I'm going to wax a little elegant here for a second, okay? So if you guys just want to picture this with me, the only thing that we have to go by in the Bible is anthropomorphic expressions, right? Just man's way of trying to describe heavenly things. And we have a lot of jewelry to describe heaven. And we have um, a crystal clear sea of jasper. The walls, the city is a square city of 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. The city was gold like glass with walls of jasper and the huge pearls for the gates and the streets of gold. And I want you to picture this is the big day, okay? This is it. Everybody's coming forth. And you're filled with unimaginable excitement and expectation as you approach this city of light and you see the Lamb of God and you begin running to Him. I mean... There it is in all of its glory. And we've only tried to anticipate or we've tried to imagine what this scene will look like, what heaven would look like. But there is our Lord in His glorious light and we see Him and we just start running, just Lord, Lord. And we run to Him. But the scene has suddenly turned horribly grim as you're stopped by His pierced and outstretched hand. And all of a sudden you kind of get the sinking feeling in your stomach. And everything that you've anticipated and everything that you've been waiting for suddenly is stopped by this outstretched hand. And you suddenly get the very dramatic realization that he's stopping you. And he doesn't look too pleased. And with everything that you've got, you suddenly search yourself and you start begging from him. And you say, Lord, Lord, Didn't I share the gospel in your name? And in your name, didn't I become a weekly part of that Bible study? And in your name, didn't I really plug into the youth group and really get into the lives of kids? 
Didn't I do these things? And in a very strong but a very sober voice, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is the passage that I came across in spring of last year. And when I read this passage in Matthew 7, I fell on my face and I bawled my eyes out because I was scared to death. There were a lot of things in my life that were questionable. A lot of things in my life that I knew I hadn't surrendered to His Lordship. And I think that that grabbed my heart. I know it grabbed my heart. And I fell on my face. And that has been a driving fear. And every time I've had the opportunity to speak, I usually try to start here. And, uh, and that's where I'd like to start today. And I would beg you guys. I'm up here standing before you guys as your brother in Christ. And uh, I, this is a great opportunity. And it's kind of a weird event because it happens three times in the spring semester. But please don't be a, distracted by that. I really want, I don't want to wax, I don't want to get heavy on you or anything, but this is the most serious thing that we as believers can consider because this is the foundational truth that we have to base our lives on. And Christ was very specific about that. And I mean to be very serious because this is very serious business, and I'll tell you why. My fear, just from being able to see things, from me being able to watch, my fear is that some of us in this room are going to be part of that group in Matthew 7. And logically, that's going to be the case because he says that these are, very, these are people that came, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? I don't know about you, but I, I'm trying to figure out how those people were able to counterfeit that stuff if they weren't of the Lord. These people were doing things that they believed were wholeheartedly for the Lord. And then they come and stand before Him, and all of a sudden they say to Him, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, as I said before. And He says, I'm sorry, but I never knew you. And that shook me into reality, and I got busy. <laughs> I got down to business to try to search and see what the whole deal was with what made the difference from what they were doing and what is acceptable in the eyes of God. And that's what I want to share with you today. Um, Peter said, and this is the reason why I'm coming before you, Peter said, be diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. And also in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul said, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Don't you know that Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And today I just want to give us an opportunity to self-examine. And I'd, I would encourage you to examine along with me. For those of you who are trying with all your might and you are walking as unto the Lord, this is cause for self-examination just to... I mean, we can always be reminded, stirred, stirred up by way of reminder, as Paul put it. For those of you that have the doubts, take this seriously, please. And um, I want to read something that... This is another quote that I came across early on. Uh, John R. W. Stott quotes this. And he says... This is why I encourage you. Failure to do this uh, results in this. He's talking about counting the cost of what it really means to follow Christ. And some of you, because you've grown up in the church, haven't ever had the opportunity to count the cost. 
but he asks every one of us to count this cost and to count it seriously. And he says of the man who fails to count the cost, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruin of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For many still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. There's no higher level of Christianity, and that is a fallacy that I would like to address just right quick. There weren't believers, and then as you were deciding to be more faithful, you'd go on in your faith and become a disciple. They are one and the same. And we are called, if we are desiring to be with our Lord and to serve Him, to be disciples of Christ. So this applies to all believers. Believers and disciples are the same thing. The passage I wanted to take you to, if you guys want to read through it, that's fine. Matthew 16, 24. And this is... I was very grateful for God's Word, not just because it's the power to save and it's the power to transform us, but because He's written it in such a way that it outlines itself. And I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time trying to come up with some clever outlines. In Matthew 16, 24, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I believe that that is the very basic truth of the gospel of Christ. That is the foundational truth that we must adhere to in order to be saved. And I wanted to talk to you today about what that means. First of all, we kind of ran around campus and some of you may have been approached and Rob went around with a video camera and tried to ask some of you what it meant to deny self. And I've been bugging a lot of people about the same thing, just to get your reactions. Um, And I got some pretty interesting ones, but unfortunately we couldn't show that this morning. But uh, we should... It was my desire to... When they asked... When they were when they said that they were going to do that. It was my prayer and my desire that you would all start thinking. And it is my desire this morning that all of us start thinking about a working definition of what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Christ. Because He's commanded all of us to do it. And we'll see later that it's something that occurs not just at the beginning of salvation, but it's a daily thing. To deny yourself is where a person, this is Holman's dictionary, okay, Bible dictionary, is where a person disassociates oneself from self-interest to serve a higher cause. And this is not just to plague yourself with certain inconveniences. That's more like Lent in the Catholic Church, right? It's not about sacrifice. And David said in Psalm 51, Thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. It's not just giving up junk food or giving up being able to spend time with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not, as Stott says, to deny the things to myself, but it's to deny myself to myself. And that's a difficult, that's weird to understand at first, and I want to go into that a little bit more in detail. He's speaking, by the way, uh, to the religious, okay? When he's talking to people, these are all the religious people who are coming out. He's addressing the hypocrites. He's addressing those people. Um, Being a disciple of Christ means a total restructuring of your life. And we've got, I'm afraid, our priorities all mixed up. 
In Matthew 22, 35 through 40, that's where God spells out the basic commandments of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the requirements of heaven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But as Tom Givens was pointing out over here at Grace Baptist Church last Sunday, I think it was, we've reversed the order. He was kind of saying it's love God, then love others, then love yourself. And he was saying we kind of mixed everything up. And the way we kind of read that now is uh, you will love yourself without even trying. You will then spend time with your neighbor when it suits you or when it's convenient. And if you have any time left over, then you give that to God. That's kind of the way we practically read that verse because we've got the order all mixed up. The first thing, the biggest obstacle that we're coming across and how he puts this out, it basically does come down to a three-point outline, okay, if you want to come across that. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and you follow him. And that's the way I want to just come across this verse. First thing is to deny yourself. The self is the biggest obstacle we've got to heaven. And careful examination and searching will reveal that pretty quick. Um, Stott again says, In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but a thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their Their religion is a great soft cushion and it protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. And two very important words that came across to me in that quote was comfort and convenience. Man, we're good at that. And uh, the first thing, comfort, we kind of come across the added comfort and convenience are the mortal enemies of our faith. If we're seeking comfort first, if we're seeking convenience first, these are what are going to keep us from truly following Christ. Matthew 6, right? Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. He had to address that because people weren't. They were seeking the byproducts of heaven instead of seeking heaven first. And that's what we tend to do. As soon as my environment is secured or when we've maintained our comfort zone, then and only then will we be able to venture out and do for others. We seek the American dream. Image is everything. We seek the right clothes and the right career and the right mate. And this is Christ's view of the American dream. He said in Matthew 8.20, The foxes have holes, have holes, and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And uh, we're looking for our, as Michael W. Smith called it, our place in this world, but we ain't got one, folks. Christ has promised us that. And again, I want to just stop and qualify because I realize how this is sounding, but this, is, this means everything to me. Because that scene scares me to death. It scares me to death for me, and I had to deal with that, and it scares me for you. And that's why I need to address this. I wanted to take this opportunity to address this. Um, the second thing that we look to after comfort is convenience. And uh, we are easily put out. I mean, we've got our 7-Elevens and we've got our ATM machines and AMPMs and we've got microwaves and all those types of things. And those very much condition us to living a life of convenience. We have books on cassette. 
Um, it's all about convenience. And this, on the video, this was a great working definition, a very practical definition. Um, somebody was approached about their definition of self-denial. And they said, self-denial is when you're on the phone and somebody beeps in and on call waiting and you find out it's for your roommate and so you hang up so they can talk on the phone. That to me is self-denial. Isn't that a great, I love that definition. But that, <laughs> that captures everything about self-denial. It's, I know it's goofy, I'm sorry. It captures everything about it because what it is saying is immediately when there is another need, you consider nothing of yourself. You are absolutely willing to lay yourself aside in order to do something for another person. You're not inconvenienced by things that come along, things that are required of you. We're really put out um, when somebody... Like I said, when somebody will come along and approach us and ask something of us. And uh, some quotes that I've been paying attention to, just kind of listening to, and I just wanted to share, and they seem to me to be examples of inconvenience. Um, people that, well, I'm not really a morning person. because, And the reason they give that is because people would like to come up and interact with them and, and they would have nothing to do with you. And... Are you talking about somebody else around your dorm or on your wing? They just irritate me so much. Or another one is, it really bugs me when. Those are statements of inconvenience. Those are when your little comfort zone or your environment has been violated. That is not the attitude of Christ. And these inconveniences are another thing, another obstacle that are keeping us from really understanding the true requirement of the kingdom. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written a two-volume study on the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives a quote talking about these types of things. And I'm going to be quoting a lot, by the way. I'm not up here to reinvent the wheel. Okay? And my desire is just to explain to you what God has put on my heart and then the best way that I can see is from godly men who have gone before and have said basically the same thing. So I'm going to be reading a lot. But he says... Whenever I notice in myself a reaction of self-defiance or a sense of annoyance or a grievance or a feeling that I have been hurt and wronged and am suffering an injustice, the moment I feel this defensive mechanism coming into play, I must just quietly face myself and ask the following questions. Is it just myself? Is it just this horrible, foul, self-centered and self-concern, this morbid condition into which I have got? It's a good question. How often do we complain about one's personality? Kind of somebody on our wing or somebody next door, a roommate or whatever, and their personality just kind of rubs us the wrong way. These are all things that are a sign of inconvenience. I'm sorry, well, I'm not sorry if it's indicting. It is indicting. I'm indicted. We're indicted. Something that is, uh, oh, <laughs> this was an interesting, Christ died for that annoying personality. This is something that really stuck with me. And not only did he die for that annoying personality, but he died for my arrogant judgment of that person's arrogant or bugging personality. Christ died to alleviate those things. And as we are living in him, we are living for him, no longer do we consider those things. 
The guys got to go to Mexico over spring break, and they went on this island and went out and basically, you know, shot hoops with murderers, men who have killed their sons, uh, rapists, um, the, the bottom of the barrel. And these guys were out there, and they were able to go out and have a ministry just playing basketball. <laughs> and these guys were out there and came back testifying that the attitudes of those guys out there on the court, these murderers, these bottom-of-the-barrel guys, had a better attitude than we do when we're in here playing intramurals on the court. That blew my mind. And it devastated me. Because what that is saying is people who are without Christ or people who are living of this world at least have the decency to treat one another with some respect or something like that. And they don't have the Holy Spirit guiding them. We do. And just last night, I mean, a referee was being personally assaulted because of his calls on the court while the game's in action. Hot and heavy, spirit of competition, all in the name of competition. As soon as the game's over, put on the happy face and come over. Great game. Thanks for repping for us. What is that? That is very inconsistent. And uh, that is something that should not characterize us, folks. And uh, people, I heard of another thing. The earthquake was such a great and grand time of coming together. And I just, it was a great thing for me to be able to see, for us to be able to see, to experience the fellowship that came out of that. And we've been talking about that a lot and, and just really, you know, lifting up how we did with that. But I've got to tell you something, and I don't know if many know about that. But there's a man that services our vending machines. And during that quake, he'd just come in the day before and serviced a vending machine up in Hotchkiss. And it was all full. And he came in the day after the quake, and it had been thrown over against the wall. The glass busted out. And he came in, and the money was gone, and every bit of product was gone out of his machine. That killed me. This man's not a believer. He knows what we're about on this campus. And I've got to tell you something to kind of preface that a little bit. About a year ago, or not a year ago, when he was growing up, his family was very, very poor. Were struggling to make ends meet, and they were, you know, not tithing because they were scraping to save, and that's that's an issue that they deal with in their heart. But their pastor approached them, came to the door, and basically chewed them out because they weren't giving in faith and giving properly, and just hammered on them, drove them out of the church. That was this guy's experience growing up, and then he comes here and he's servicing our campus, and that happens to him. That broke my heart. Because this is a man who we are supposed to be a light to and a salt to. And all he knows is that we, in the midst of you know, a, a frenzy or a crazy situation, took advantage of him and robbed him blind. That breaks my heart. And I hope it breaks yours too. Because we are the body of Christ. And he is looking at what we did. And he is putting that on Christ's name. And I don't want my Lord to suffer that, and I know you don't either. The third thing after comfort and convenience are conditions. And this was a tough one for me. I came in, let me tell you a little bit about conditions. Conditions are those limitations, a few addendum or a 
few quid pro quo, as the genie put it, that we put on God. And that we say, we'll serve you, God. We will come at you with all of our heart. But, and then we usually follow it with some kind of condition. And I did this. I spent most of my life practicing my drums, getting good, turned pro. And then all of a sudden, got saved. And so I said, okay, God, I want to please you. I want to pursue godliness. But let me play my drums doing it. And I placed this condition. And I don't know... And I'm not sure if I was willing to divorce myself from that and to just lay those things aside. I don't know if I was willing to put those up on the altar, so to speak. And he just gave me situations to force me to make that decision. And uh, it could be music, pursuing music. It could be out on the baseball field. And how much are you willing to let go of that bat, to lay it down, if that's what it takes? It doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to make us but how much willingness do we have to say, I want to play baseball, this is what I'm about, but if, I really, if you really are calling me to do that, I'll lay this bat down right here and walk off that field, and I'll serve you in a completely different... I'll go out and dig ditches in Ethiopia. It's just an attitude of willingness. That's what it boils down to. And these little conditions that we place, um, even in ministry, it affects even ministry. And we will say, God, I want to serve you, but I want to work with kids. And that's a good desire to work with kids. But if your priority is just because you want to work with kids, you want to hang out with them, you want to be cool for them, you want to give them kind of a role model because you're, after all, such a neat person, and they would benefit from having that time with you. And all I'm doing is just telling you that because that was my thinking. I had a lot to offer kids. I came to this school. I had a lot to offer I was an older student. I was more wise in the ways of the world. And I came with a lot to offer. That was so arrogant and prideful. And God has been systematically taking a long time to break me of that. But these conditions I had, it was like, you know, I can be a benefit and all these types of things. These conditions are also an obstacle to us denying ourselves. Something that is that was instrumental in helping me to overcome that mentality was in discussing this with my youth pastor. He said, I'll tell you what, we deserve nothing but hell. And anything above that is a blessing and an act of mercy from God. And Luke 17.10, Luke says, after all is said and done, you say, I am only an unworthy servant doing what I'm only commanded to do. That's what we deserve. We, do, we deserve to be working all day and come in from the field and then serve our master. Um, these little conveniences. <laughs> inconvenience really flared up with the whole denim shirt situation, didn't it? It was kind of an inconvenience that we couldn't wear the right thing or what we wanted to wear to chapel. I couldn't believe the dilemma that caused. And we see it maybe in the way we choose how we dress. Um, you know, having, having the right or the freedom to wear certain things. These are things that Christ has asked us to lay aside, if necessary, for the benefit of those around us, for the benefit of our brethren. It's always putting others before you, and as Philippians 2.3 says, it's regarding one another as more important than yourself. And that leads to the next point. First of all, the order that we've got is, instead of God, self, and others, we've got self, others, and God. And I want you to notice that in both of those lists, 
Others are second. Others is always in the middle. But how you treat others and how you are approaching others and serving others really depends on which list you're using. Out of that, out of your service to God is going to be coming your service to others. But if yourself comes before, all our efforts are in vain, they are conceited, and they are worthless. Philippians 2.3, at the beginning of that verse, says when you do something, for, do nothing for, from, uh, what is it? Do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. If you're doing something for others from selfishness, it is in selfishness and vain conceit. God has got to be the first priority. And if from the outflow of our service to God comes our service to others, that is where it is going to benefit. This is practicing the other way when you're trying to do for others as far as what you can get, like a reward or reputation. This is practicing your righteousness before men. And I've got to tell you something. This is another where, place where I've been personally indicted. I'm here with you and I'm speaking to myself as well. Out of selfish motives trying to serve, you see it nowhere else. You see your selfishness nowhere else better than when you're in an intimate relationship with somebody. And between the Holy Spirit and between uh, Kim, I can't get away with anything anymore. Okay? And God will send somebody into your life to call you on things if you're willing to let Him. And when I do stuff from selfishness, she knows it. She can see it on my face. She can see it in my eyes. If I'm doing something with a hidden agenda, I'm kind of maybe wanting to do something nice because I know, oh, that was so nice of you, and I know I'm going to get something from it. She sees right through it. And gratefully, she doesn't oblige. So thank you. But uh, I'll tell you, we seek that. And I just had a conversation with a guy last night. And he's saying, I really struggle with that. I struggle with serving my girlfriend from the right motives, really serving her for what she can do to grow in Christ. And if we are serving, and I don't want to hold it or limit it to that relational context, it's anything. It's your roommate, it's anything. If we're doing stuff out of a selfish motive, if self is first and others are second, people are going to see right through that. And they do and they have. And hopefully, they'll have the presence of mind to call you on it and not just let it slip by. Um, and then thirdly on the list, after self and others, is God. In our practical list, He gets the scraps and the leftovers and our worship, as Steve Camp put it, is noise and our music is play. But David said in Second Samuel twenty four twenty four, I will not offer that which costs me nothing. And this is where I see the difference between Cain and Abel. Abel did it right, Cain did it wrong. It's out of a pure heart that he was willing to give to God. Cain wasn't. And these areas include, I mean, what we give to God is the leftovers of our time. We give Him the leftovers of our relational skills. As soon as we have our relationship secured and all that, then we'll give Him that. We'll give Him our money out of the leftover. Our priorities are really messed up. So the first thing we see is that we must count the cost by denying ourselves. And I'll tell you, and I know this is a painful examination, but it's necessary and it's worth it. And nothing good comes without pain. The ultimate sacrifice or the ultimate good came from the ultimate pain, the ultimate sacrifice. Self is our number one obstacle and it's painful to realize the extent to our selfishness um, to which self controls your life. 
And again, stop. In order to follow Christ, we must not only forsake the isolated sins, but renounce the very principle of self-will, which lies at the root of every act of sin. Self-will lying at the very act of sin. To follow Christ is to surrender Him the rights over our own lives. And I was, as I was preparing this, I'd gotten to the end of this part and I was dwelling a lot on self, focusing a lot on self, and I realized Christ does not mean for us to do this. And this self-examination, as Paul puts it, and as Peter asked us to do, is only long enough to realize the bankruptcy of ourself. It's only long enough to realize there is nothing good that dwells in this body of flesh. And that brings you... Um, this is the put-off principle, deny self. We see so much. We see every part of our being that is corrupt by the flesh. And that is where we have to put off to deny ourself. And that leads us to the second thing, which is where you put on. The Bible is full of the principle of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. You put off the old man by denying yourself. And the thing that you put on in its place, which is essential, is the next part of that verse in Matthew 16. You deny yourself and then you take up your cross. And this is a phrase that has been misused. You hear it thrown around in a lot of ways. And we hear, well, we've all got our crosses to bear. And it usually boils down to nothing more than some of those inconveniences that we talked about. And MacArthur kind of addresses that in the Gospel according to Jesus. And he says it can be anything from an old 57 Chevy to a mother-in-law, cranky mother-in-law. And those don't quite cut it. The concept of the cross had only one meaning to Jesus when he was speaking. In Holman's dictionary again, he's talking about the whole he's setting up the whole scene of crucifixion, the whole concept, what that means, what that requires. They'd scourge the man, they'd be ripping the flesh off of his back. And then what they would do is after this beating, the victim was forced to bear the cross, this is their definition, to bear the cross beam to the execution site and this was key for me, in order to signify that his life was already over and to break his will to live. You would put on that cross in order to signify, let the prisoner know, your life is done. You're carrying your own instrument of execution. And he was breaking his will to live. All he wanted was out of this agony. He'd been beaten and he'd been tortured. All he wanted was relief of death. It was to break his will to live. And I believe that that's what Christ is referring to. We deny ourselves of our very self, our very rights that we think we have and our privileges, and then we take up our cross. It can mean only one thing, and that is our willingness, our attitude to go to death for our Lord. Stotz calls it the attitude that we adopt. Uh, he says the attitude that we adopt is that of crucifixion. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is what it boils down to. I can't stand up here and give a legalistic list of things that we should put off and things that we must start doing. That's not it. And I'm grateful for that. This is how we guard against legalism, I believe. It's an attitude of crucifixion. An attitude which is that of Christ Jesus. And we put off this, we take up this cross and Luke adds... In uh, 9.23 of Luke, he adds the, the adverb daily. 
Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. This is again where we struggle. This is another stumbling block. Uh, 15, in 1 Corinthians 15.31, Paul says, I die daily. And this is serious work and it takes a lot of endurance. And we look at the big picture. This is my problem. I'll say, I'll find out that we need to die daily. And so I'll look at the big picture. So you mean my living faithful for today has got to be a thing that I do for the rest of my life every day of denying self, doing all these things. I can't do it. And you're right. You can't do it. Um, the reason why we have this mentality, we just getting overwhelmed by the big picture and seeing I can't live a life of total surrender. Maybe for the next five minutes or so, we kind of, you know, maybe want this little map version. For the next five minutes, I can deny myself. I can kind of go out on a limb for a little while. But then I need to need a break from it. And it's kind of like a condensed version where we just go kind of step by step. And uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of the comedian Stephen Wright, but this guy's just way out there. And I don't recommend anything. Anyway, he says that... Uh, this is one of his lines. I have a map at home of the United States and its actual size. And I had to think about that for a minute, but he's got a map at home and its actual size. Can't do it. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Basically, I just th- that's what we try to do is instead of the actual thing, what, uh, what was it, Jim Elliott? He gave this concept that to surrender your whole life is going to take your whole life. And I can do it for a time and we can go in these little spurts. But Luke qualified it in saying that we die daily. Paul said we die daily. And uh, this condensed or this map-sized version, the reason we do this is we're living in such a way, I mean, our very society structure is based on this idea or this concept of deserving arrest. When we get a job, one of the first priorities or one of the first things to consider is, well, how many weeks vacation do I get after the first year? We work for so long and then we need our break. Even in the year, we get, or within the month, we have our weekends off. Within the week, we have our weekends, or same thing. Within the day, we get our hour lunch break. Within our hours of working, we have our 10-minute breaks every two hours by law. It's spelled out for... It's given to us. And we just... We start getting into this mentality that we deserve a break today. And that's just... Our, the break isn't from righteousness. Um, but we tend to, instead of relying on the, the strength of Christ and doing all things through Christ who strengthens us, because of the selfishness and not being able to accomplish the first, which is denying self, we try to carry this cross of doing what the Lord requires but it's on our strength and we're pretty much doomed to failure. But Paul said, I press on toward the goal of the upward call. And now that is our call as well. And the writer of Hebrews also in chapter 12 says, I do that and I lay aside these things by fixing my eyes on Jesus. And that's where I want to start kind of trying to get on a little more positive note. The third thing after denying self and taking up our cross is to follow Him is to follow Christ. And Stott says, forsaking can't be separated from following. When we are forsaking our sin, we are also choosing to follow Christ. And Dr. MacArthur in his the Gospel According to Jesus, 
talks about that a little bit, and he says, the Lord makes the narrow path as hard as He possibly can by demanding that those who really want to follow Him step out of the crowd and pick up a cross, an instrument of torture and death. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. The first thing we notice about following Christ, this new way that we are supposed to walk, the way of Christ, the first thing we notice is that it is a life which is narrow and straight at the very beginning. Immediately, it is narrow. It is not a life which is at first fairly broad and which, as you go on, becomes narrower and narrower. And he goes on to say, from the standpoint of evangelism, evangelism, this is a necessary truth, and we leave this out. The way is not broad. The way does not start out very wide and get narrow. In Matthew, we are told that the gate is small and the way is narrow. We start small and we keep going small. The way is very narrow. And that is why I'm talking to you guys about this today. Percentage-wise, I don't know what the exact percentages would be, but there's about 10% of the people who are really faithful. Let's just use these figures. 10% who are really dying to self, focusing on the Lord and following Him. And there's another 10% at the bottom, maybe the prisoners in Mexico. They know where they're at. They know they need. They know where their sins are headed, and they choose that lifestyle. But the 80% in the middle are who I'm concerned with, and I believe the 80% in the middle are the people that Christ was addressing in Matthew 7. These are the people who are thinking they were going through all the right motions and doing all the right things. But the way is very narrow. It's not the broad way, it's the narrow way. And uh, Dr. Jones kind of gives the illustration of a turnstile where we approach that gate and it is a turnstile admitting only one at a time. We get to the place where we finally have figured out where the kingdom is and we get there and it's a turnstile. And you can't go in on anybody else's coattails because your mom and dad were believers. I'm getting in. You can't go in holding anybody's hands. You can't go in you know, with any extra baggage or anything like that. In fact, MacArthur says, only those stripped of everything can enter this narrow gate. One cannot get through a turnstile with armloads of suitcases. The narrow gate Jesus describes is not wide enough for superstars who want to enter with all their valuables, with all their talents, with all their hobbies. The rich young ruler searched until he found the gate, and when he saw that the entering, that entering meant he had to leave everything behind, he turned away. Whoever we are, whatever it is we treasure, when we reach the narrow gate, we can expect to drop everything. The baggage of self-righteousness, selfishness, sin, or materialism must be left outside or we'll never make it through. But the good news is, although the gate is narrow, it is wide enough to accommodate the chief of sinners. And uh, this is something that, again, just going back to the comfort and the convenience, we, we stop here. We get to the turnstile and we see that is. You know, you're going, you guys have been to stadiums and there's enough room for you, just you and you alone to get by. You can't go in. I mean, you try to hold on to your girlfriend's hand as you're going in. You can't do it. You have to turn around walk forward. And God says that's the way it is. I believe it is that narrow. We get to that gate, we get to that turnstile, and we are left with nothing but ourselves and our attitude. It can be an attitude of self or it can be an attitude of serving God and serving others. Um, 
down, once inside that gate, we are handed our cross, we come to that cross, and then we are told to walk down that very narrow, very treacherous path. And we can see on all sides of us those who are scoffing and those who are ridiculing because it's so narrow, we're doing things that are just absolutely absurd to the world. And here is where we will even face some ridicule and some indictment from our closest, those closest to us. In fact, Christ at the beginning in Matthew 10 there is saying that I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And the enemies will be those members of your own household. I will turn father against son. I will turn mother against daughter. I will turn members of your own... Your worst enemies are going to be members of your own household. And some of you can relate to that. I was talking to a guy who has... He was brought up in the Catholic Church and now he's following Christ. He's here studying the Word of God. And he's coming under tremendous persecution for that from his own family. You're labeled a religious fanatic or you're labeled this. It's not fanaticism. Well, I guess it is. But that's what Christ requires. He requires absolute and total obedience, fanatic following. But it's very sober-minded fanaticism, if you want to call it that. Um, It's very lonely and it's very unpopular. But we've got to go all the way. Um, Matthew 10.22, he says, those who endure to the end are the ones who are saved. It's not that we're working our way to salvation. I hope you know that I'm not saying that. I know fully that our salvation is by grace, by faith. But true faith is going to manifest itself in enduring obedience to the end. In Revelation, he says, he who overcomes will inherit these things, the kingdom of God. As I said, it's lonely and it's unpopular, and this is again where we falter. If it's unpopular, we're going to have to take the unpopular view. We're going to have to take that very narrow and very lonely way. It's like, man, losing that comfort and losing the, the security of our friends, that's a tough thing. And I agree, it is a tough thing. But all I'm asking you to consider is what is more important, what is most important. People were first called Christians in a derogatory sense. Maybe you guys realize that. People were calling them Christians because they were looking around and they were trying so hard to model this Christ, this Nazarene, that people were going, these people are like little Christians, little Christ-like. It was a derogatory remark. And they didn't start calling themselves Christians like it's not something that you give to yourself. It's not a title you give to yourself. Others will look at your life and by your fruits, know that you are a disciple. People will call you Christians. They'll have to. You guys have kind of heard the analogy. If all of a sudden Christianity were outlawed in the United States, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? And that was, that was another cause of self-examination. I had to really look and see. Is there enough evidence in my life showing that I am absolutely sold out and following Christ to convict me of being a Christian? And then, consequently, would I be willing to pay the price? Um, Some very practical things that I've seen that we can apply this to. To denying self, uh, to putting your things, your rights, your privileges aside. How about when we are in our classes? And this is going to be very practical. These are suggestions, again, from me your brother who just happens to have an opportunity to stand up here, to you. Think about them, do with them what you want. But when we go into our classroom, 
and the class starts at 12.50, are we willing to lay aside the convenience of not finishing our conversation or to continue on what we're doing throughout the week and give some service or have the attitude of serving our professors by giving them our attention? I really, it astounds me how much, how, not how much, how little respect we give to our professors. The time starts, most of the time they have to stand up there for a little while and just wait. Most of the time we don't get the hint and then they have to say, you know, okay, we're up here to learn and for 50 minutes we can shut everything off, give our respect and give our attention to our professor and let him know that he is one of the people including in, included in the group of others that we are to serve. I think that would be a great testimony to our own professors. It must be very discouraging to the speakers who are up here in chapel. I mean, lay aside the inconvenience of not being able to use this time because nobody really notices to get some homework done or to carry on the conversation. We have a great tendency to harden our hearts to what we hear here. And you guys hear this all the time. I hear it all the time. But there's a reason why everybody keeps telling us that. And I'm wondering how much fruit people see on this campus. Um, The fruit that we... I mean, another practical thing. um, Somebody in the split chapels, there was somebody that noticed there was a girl sitting in in the middle of a couple of girls. And... The two girls kept talking throughout the service. And this one girl decided she was going to take a stand. Even though she was sitting down, she was going to take a stand. And the girls were like, da-da-da-da-da-da, talking around. And she wasn't playing. She was standing there because she was wanting to be attentive and wanting to learn from what the speaker was having to say. So then the girls were like speaking around her and kind of talking to one another through her. That was a great testimony to me because she was willing she may have wanted to be involved in the conversation these are her good friends but she was willing to stop that and lay it aside in order to give the attention and to give service and to pay respect to the person that was up in front that was another great illustration it was a great testimony to me and I appreciated that very much Um, these are the practical things because we hear about what we're having to will being willing to lay aside um laying down your life, being in a foreign country, being persecuted to the point of death, we probably won't have the opportunity to do that. You know, great. But how are we still being called or asked to deny ourselves? There are some very practical ways that we're pretty much refusing to do or just kind of ignoring. But this is my challenge to you. Just on this very practical level, in order to follow Christ and deny yourself, um, are you willing to start today to go to your class And when the class starts to sit in there, let your professor know that you respect him and you appreciate his efforts, his years of schooling in order to be able to get up there and teach you and to give him your full attention and just to keep your conversations on hold until the end of class. That's a very practical way of being able to meet somebody's need and serve. And not only is that, it's a good testimony to those around and show you a little bit of discipline. And the conclusion, it's not just important to wrestle with this text. It's not important, it's not just important to grapple with this idea of denying self and taking up your cross and following Jesus. But it's absolutely essential to do these things. In Matthew 10.38 he says, He who doesn't do these things, taking up cross, denying self, is not worthy of me. 
of being called a Christian. Luke 14, he puts it in a negative way and he says, uh, those who aren't willing to do these things cannot be a disciple. Obedience, denying self, all these things are going to be fruits of the fact that you are a disciple of Christ. Uh, a friend of mine gave me some really interesting things from Tozer in a book called Born Before Midnight. Uh, in order, in the context of laying these things aside, yet for all God's good will towards us, He is unable to grant our heart's desire till all of our desires have been reduced to one. When we have dealt with our carnal ambitions, when we have trodden upon the lion and adder of the flesh and have trampled the dragon of self-love under our feet and have truly reckoned ourselves to have died unto sin, then and only then can God raise us to newness of life and fill us with His blessed Holy Spirit. The hope is that the gate is small and the path is narrow. But I just got to read this. The words of Matthew 11, 28 and 29. These things take a lot of effort, but they're only a lot of effort because we've been doing it wrong for so long. It's only uncomfortable and it only hurts to give because we've been giving wrong for so long. And what Christ says is it's a worthy goal and what He says is to come to Me in verse 28 and 29 of Matthew 11. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Um, the rest that we are seeking is the rest from ourselves, from carrying the burden of self. And He says... The rest from that is to take his yoke because his yoke is easy. The yoke of meekness and humility and his burden is light. Struggling on and continuing on in our way of the flesh, it's going to wear you down and it will eventually lead to destruction. Um, I just looked down and realized I'd gone way over because I wanted to give us some time to sit and think about these things. Um, but I would pray that you would do that. Please do that. Take this home. Take it to lunch. And just meditate on these things for a while. I may have come at it in the wrong way. I may have been too harsh or domineering. God has put this on my heart and I needed to convey that to you. But however it relates to you, denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following the Lord Jesus Christ at all costs is a requirement in order to enter the kingdom of God. It's the high cost of a free gift. And I would ask you guys to examine yourselves, please, because my greatest fear is that some of you who I've been sur- just been walking alongside and rubbing shoulders with in my classes, spending my college career with, are not going to be standing before the Lord. Please examine and just make sure. Let's pray. God, you've blessed us with an incredible opportunity. You've blessed us with the gracious free gift of salvation, which we did nothing to deserve. But a great error, Father, is that we've tried to propagate a gospel that is easy and free and very free in the sense that it requires nothing of us. And that the momentary decision 
or that prayer is the end. But Father, we know that it's only the beginning. It's the beginning of a long and narrow journey then a very hard and narrow path. But God, it's only those who endure to the end, we know, who will be saved. And so give us the strength, Father, to press on.